Zach, I want to thank you for directing our attention to Ephesians this morning as we think about worship, songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. If you ever show up to church on a Sunday morning and don't think that the singing has a vital role in your growth and maturing, I want the scripture to confront you in that thought and understand that what we just did is vital to Christian life. So I appreciate so much Zach and the worship band that leads us. Every Sunday morning consistently, I think they're probably the earliest people that show up here on a Sunday. Is that true, Sean? Yeah. And do what they do to help us grow and mature through songs, hymns, and spiritual songs is the way that Paul puts it. My name, Risen Church, is Devin Berry, and I've been a member here at Risen for about a year and a half. Over the years, I've had the privilege of filling various pulpits, and Sean, for better or worse, gave me the opportunity to preach to you this morning. There are two things that you should know about me um, before we jump into the sermon this morning. The first one is, I'm a crier. And so if at any point during the service this morning, and I'm hoping I'm inoculating myself against this just by telling you this, I start to get a little tearful, just look over at my wife and my son. If she's laughing and he's rolling his eyes, you'll know that everything's just okay. Keep going. The second thing, oh, by the way, this is the same son, and I won't mention his name, although he's the only one of my two sons sitting in here this morning. The same son who halfway through the first song leaned over and said, Dad, how long are you preaching this morning? (laughs) So maybe we'll go a little bit extra long. The second thing you should know about me is that I am not from here. In April of 2021, my family relocated here from Portland, Oregon. And if COVID left your memory even partially intact, and your appreciation of socio-political variations across our great nation extends beyond the borders of Texas, you'll understand when I say it has been a journey. One of the things that has made the transition more than tolerable, however, was finding a church home. Risen has been so very kind and welcoming to our family. I still remember our first Sunday when Travis and Anna Smith came up to us, introduced themselves, chatted us up, gave us their contact information, and offered to help us with anything we might need. We were strangers, and they made us feel like friends. For those of you who have relocated regularly, and I know that many of you, especially in the oil and gas industry, have relocated regularly, you'll understand that with relocating, It is not so much that you don't know anyone, it is that you are not known by anyone. So fast forward two years from when we first arrived. I wrote this introduction from a hotel room in Washington, D.C. on March 25th. The night before, March 24th, while I was flying to D.C., my wife was hosting our gospel circle of care in our home. Families like the Hansons, the Ardills, and the Smiths were at our home. Callie shared her testimony and encouraged my family with a story of God's faithfulness. Scott challenged my family with an explanation of his budget wizardry when it comes to weekly expenditures on food. My wife was in awe. Anavi and Sam entertained Callie's young sons, Paul and Ellis. And Travis, which there you are, That same guy who walked up to strangers and said hello two years ago did all of our dishes, thanks to Anna's good training. 
three or four hours after the event started, the house finally emptied out. My wife called me up in my hotel room. Her heart was full. Our boys had a much better evening than they would have had if they sat at home alone in front of a screen all evening. And we as a family were blessed. My family, though hosting, was on the receiving end of biblical hospitality. And this brings us to our topic for this morning. When Sean approached me with the opportunity to preach, he shared that he wanted to extend our series on gospel culture out of the book of Philippians into practical application for the people of Risen who find themselves as citizens of heaven in a new meeting place and in a new community. He stated, one of the reasons for doing Philippians was to prepare our people for moving into the new space where we would be formed into kingdom citizens and partners together for advancing the gospel. Hopefully that language rings a few bells. Sean is drawing it directly from Paul's letter to the Philippians where he says in Philippians 2, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. In Philippians 3 where he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. Through this series, Sean and Michael and the Apostle Paul were calling us to gospel culture, not simply gospel labels. To be a partner or a citizen means nothing if it does not result in a culture, a way of living. We get a very clear snapshot of one important aspect of gospel culture in the closing verses of Philippians. See if you can guess it while I just pick through a few pieces in Philippians 4 here. Paul says to the Philippian church, you have revived your concern for me. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. You entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul says, I am well supplied. What Paul is describing is biblical hospitality, a fundamental expression of what it means to live out our citizenship in heaven. So this morning we start what I'll call an occasional series on hospitality. Part one is today, and if you or Sean don't run, on, run me out of here by the end, we'll continue the series later this summer. I come by my interest in hospitality pretty honestly. I've been the beneficiary of much of it. I was raised in a family of eight children on a small farm. And there was a long season in life where we were quite poor. We received assistance from the state for food. We burned wood to heat our home because we could not afford fuel oil for the furnace. And we drove cars that were in a continual state of disrepair. And my parents both worked countless hours at multiple jobs simultaneously. In the midst of all this, we were often on the receiving end of life-sustaining gifts from people that we did not know. One instance that I remember clearly was a Thanksgiving holiday that we did not have enough money to purchase a turkey. And I keep a handkerchief in my preaching folder here. 
because I know myself well. On the morning of, we woke up to several bags of groceries left on our porch containing two turkeys. But I have a question. Does that sound like hospitality to you? Is two turkeys in a bag left on an unsuspecting and needy family's doorstep hospitality? Or do you think of something else? The world certainly has answers. Did you know that there's a whole area of study called hospitality ethics? You can take courses in it, you can get degrees in it, and even have a career in it. In this industry, hospitality is bought and sold. An exchange takes place. I give you money, you give me relief and help of some sort. Restaurants, hotels, resorts, Airbnb, VRBO are all trading on the certainty of our desires for food and shelter and, among other things, needing to be met. So what do you think? Is the world's idea of hospitality is the same as the hospitality that God calls for? If not, have contemporary cultural ideas about hospitality perhaps subtly crept into our thinking as believers? We will consider more fully the world's influence and our ideas about hospitality in future parts of this series. But before we move on, have you ever caught yourself making determinations about who to express hospitality to in terms of what they are able to give back? Certainly not money, but what about easy and fun company free of noisy kids running around in your home? Ever do that, algebra? Let's not have them over. That would be my family you'd be referring to. What about a pretty or a handsome face to look at? What about an increase in status because everyone, or even just myself, will know that we just ate with so-and-so? It is subtle, perhaps almost barely conscious. We quietly in our hearts and maybe even in our private conversations with friends or spouses begin to transform hospitality into a transaction much like the world, a give to get, an investment with an expected return. So let me give you a sneak peek into where we are headed. The hospitality that pleases God knows nothing of such an exchange. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to dive into your word this morning, we ask that your word would do what you have told us it will do would transform us by the power of your spirit from the inside out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just to be sure that we all start on the same page, I want to briefly define hospitality for you. I say briefly because it is one of those concepts that is far more clear when it is seen versus when it is defined. So here's a starting point. Hospitality is kindness to strangers or generosity to those in need. Hospitality is kindness to strangers or generosity to those in need. This morning, as we move through the pages of Scripture, we will consider hospitality as it is pictured. What does it look like and sound like in the pages of Scripture? As it is grounded, what are the biblical reasons for showing hospitality? And as it is mirrored, who or what are we ultimately mirroring as believers when showing hospitality? So hospitality pictured, strangers, sojourners, 
and foreigners. Let's start by simply surveying the whole of Scripture for instances of and commands to hospitality. Not only will this allow us to picture hospitality, but will also allow us to develop some sense of proportion when it comes to how frequently hospitality is actually discussed in the Scriptures. If we begin with a simple count, there are no less than 20 specific instances in the Old Testament where the act of hospitality is recorded in detail. There are another nine in the New Testament. So let's look at a few examples. In Genesis 18, we have the well-known account of Abraham entertaining three guests who inform him that Sarah will become pregnant. In Genesis 18, it reads, and, and this morning I'll just let you know ahead, yeah, we will be all over Old Testament and New Testament, um, flipping pretty quickly. So if you're content to just listen, that's fine. I often won't throw in the verse reference, just the chapter. Um, but uh, it'll be, I think, too much flipping to actually keep up with. So Genesis 18, he, that is Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. He said, let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. In Genesis 19, we see Lot not only taking in the Lord's messengers to give them refreshment and rest, but we see him protecting them from the desirous mobs of Sodom. Lot says in Genesis 19, My Lord, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Considered by some to be the oldest book in the Old Testament, we can hear Job defend his righteousness before God by pointing to his own expressions of hospitality. Job says in Job 31, If I have eaten of my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I, Job, have opened my doors to the traveler. And perhaps a less well-known example is the hospitality of the Shunammite woman who out of her wealth provided food and lodging for Elisha. 2 Kings 4 says, One day Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. In the Old Testament, we see God's people regularly engaging in hospitality. But how about the New Testament? Well, Martha's first encounter with Christ came as an expression of hospitality. Luke 10, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Paul and Silas, after baptizing Lydia, were invited into her home. Acts 16 says, And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this helps us to see, even if briefly, what hospitality looks like when it is displayed. Little vignettes, if you will. 
But we can learn even more about hospitality if we consider those passages which are not necessarily recording real-life expressions of hospitality, but rather commanding or calling for hospitality. So let's consider first the law that was given to Israel by God, as it has much to say about kindness to strangers and generosity to those in need. And keep in mind that although Christ has completely fulfilled and met the requirements of the law, one of the clear purposes of the law was to reflect to us the holy character of God. So in considering the law, we learn something about God himself. And we'll dwell on that more in just a moment. But in Leviticus, we learn that the poor, strangers, and sojourners were to systematically benefit from the hospitality of God's people. Leviticus 19 and chapter 33 says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. In Deuteronomy, we learn more about this pattern of hospitality that was to be embedded in Jewish culture. Deuteronomy chapters 14 and 24. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. We were in Oregon over spring break, back visiting old friends and spending a little time on the coast up there. And we went to a restaurant called um, Local Ocean in Newport. It's about two-thirds of the way down the coast in Oregon. And uh, it was our one kind of, we tried to do like one big meal out when we're vacationing because it's just too expensive to do it all the time. So we did one big meal in kind of a nice restaurant um, right on the coast there. You can watch ships going in and out and all the food comes right out of the water. And so we had had our our big meal, enjoyed it a lot. And it's one of those restaurants um, because of the expense, I suppose, that the tips just added right in, right? So it's, it's already part of the bill. Um, we're happy, we're eating, we're having good food. It's a beautiful sunset, great time of day. Bill comes, um, I pay it, I dutifully fill out the tip part and put that in there as well and then walk out of the restaurant. And as we're exiting, my wife says to me, hey, did you tip? And thinking like a good husband and taking care of our finances and our responsibilities in the restaurant, I was like, well, of course I tipped. And she's like, oh, you didn't realize the tip was already in the bill. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, okay. That was kind of a big bill. That's a big tip. That's a big double tip. So then you have a little moment right there and then, right? I could go back in and say, hey, I goofed up. Can you take this off our credit card and can you rebill us so we can put it back on? Or 
I can look at the waitress that we had, and I can just say to myself, why would I go back and get that sheaf that I forgot in the field? Just leave it. Just leave it. And that's just a little slice, a smidgen of the spirit that was to be cultivated intentionally in Jewish culture. We leave extra. We think about those who do not have as much in a really systematic, methodical way. These and many other passages in the Old Testament highlight the importance of the practice of hospitality for the Jewish nation. But the call for kindness to strangers extends into the New Testament and therefore into the church as well. Romans 12 says this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Hebrews 13 says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So we've made a very brief survey of hospitality in the Old and New Testaments. And let's pause for a moment before moving on and make several observations. First, hospitality is an activity. It's something we do. Simply feeling as if you are hospitable or that you want to be hospitable is not the same as actually showing hospitality. If you're like my wife and me, we have a very long list of intentions in this area of hospitality and a much shorter list of actual activities. The conversation often goes like this as we're pulling out of the parking lot here at Risen Church on Sunday afternoons. Hey, babe, did you meet that couple who was so-and-so? Did you notice they had four kids and they were so-and-so? Yeah, we should get them over to the house. End of conversation. (laughs) It never happens. It never happens. That's actually not hospitality. The intention's there and the thought's there, which are good. But that's not a biblical hospitality because biblical hospitality is actually action. Can you relate? It's a simple simple question to help you soberly reflect on your hospitality is this. How many times in the past three months have you gone out of your way to show kindness to strangers or given generously to those who have needs? Just a quick thought. That's not the only way to think about it, and it's certainly not the right litmus for everybody. But if you want to just ask yourself that question and try to ring it up or chat about that with your spouse or your kids this afternoon, not a bad question to ask. Second observation. Biblical hospitality always includes a giving and a receiving party. It's a transfer between haves and have-nots. That is, the giver supplies the needs of the receiver. There is a one-way transaction. No expected return, no exchange. During ancient biblical times, the traveler, that is the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner, often had no hotel to stop at. There were no restaurants or rest areas. They were dependent upon the hospitality of the occupants of the land through which they traveled. The poor needed fed and clothed, and the fatherless and the widow needed to be provided for and protected. I think the best expressions of hospitality involve intentionally meeting the needs of those who do not have the means 
to do so. While food and housing certainly qualify, there are all kinds of other needs we should watch out for like fellowship, comfort, counsel, protection. Although having your best friends over for a meal and conversation on a Sunday is a very good thing to do, we probably should not be too quick to think of ourselves as being hospitable for that reason alone, at least in biblical terms. Thirdly, hospitality by its very nature will stretch us out of our normal routines and comfort zones. Abraham had no ahead notice as to the arrival of his three guests. The descriptions of pace in that passage are telling. He hurries into the tent and he says to Sarah, Genesis 18, quick, three bags of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. I think my wife has heard me on many occasions say something almost exactly like that. I invited somebody over, I forgot to tell you, quick. And then spaghetti magically appears. It's great. He then ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly, the text says. As we've already seen, farmers were called to leave food in the field. Probably not very comfortable for a lot of farmers. Village dwellers were called to take in strangers passing through. Maybe not at the top of your list to do. And the church body is called to meet the needs of the saints. So a quick question. What is the visceral reaction in your home when an unscheduled need arrives on your doorstep? The doorbell rings at dinner time. Everybody just looks at each other and thinks, oh, what kind of interruption is this going to be? The text comes in at bedtime. And it's not a text that can wait till morning. The conversation in the parking lot at church at lunchtime leaves you with the obligation, perhaps disguised as an opportunity, with an intentional flipping of words there, to do good. Those are not easy moments, but they are moments that expose our hearts and our disposition toward opportunities, obligations that the Lord puts in front of us to exercise biblical hospitality. In so many ways, what is accepted as part of Christian culture or the Bible Belt vibe sets us up to miss opportunities to be hospitable or worse, to actually be inhospitable. A few examples. We confuse fiscal conservativeness for biblical stewardship and manage resources to such an exactness that there is nothing left for spontaneous generosity, whether in time or money. It might sound like this. I'd love to treat that family to lunch, but I'm trying to double up on my house payment. Or we confuse faith and family first as a rigid formula for prescribing how we prioritize our time. You know, with church activities and the kids' sports and music and dance and school, we're pretty tapped out. It's enough just to take care of ourselves. Faith and family first. Maybe we confuse hospitality itself for an opportunity to do something that serves ourselves instead of others. I'm a Joanna Gaines, and I love having people into my beautiful home because it makes me feel good. Please don't ask me to be hospitable in a way that doesn't involve having folks in my home. 
because I really like doing that. Fair enough, you might say, but is that all there is to it? Carve out time for a few people I don't know that well, spend some money that I'd rather spend elsewhere, except that I may not really enjoy being hospitable that much? Sure, give me another list. I'll find a way to check it off. To keep us from devolving into that mentality, we have to understand how hospitality is grounded in the scriptures, the why, if you will, of hospitality. In the Old Testament, we first see in the law this simple explanation of why hospitality. Leviticus 19 says, leave some extra in the field for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The rational, rationale here is simple. I am God and I have spoken. You are to obey. Our holy and sovereign creator has every right to command. But we are not left there. Just God, just as a wise father will do, makes clear that the call to hospitality is not simply a capricious order that he one day dreamed up. As with all of God's commands, it is an extension of his character and his holiness. But before we go there, let's take a quick look at the New Testament and consider the reason it supplies. In the New Testament, we see the church body in general called to hospitality. And as we noted in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 4 earlier, the clear context for the call to hospitality is love. Hear it again in John's third epistle to the elder Gaius. John is drawing attention to the people in Gaius' church who cared well for the brothers who had recently passed through in the course of their missionary work. In 3 John, verse 3, it says this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, the ones who are passing through, strangers as they are. You don't know them. They testify to your love before the church you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Romans 12 states this, let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection and seek to show hospitality. Love and hospitality. Hebrews 13 states, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, love and hospitality. And 1 Peter 4 states, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another. It's no mistake that the proximity between love and hospitality in the New Testament is constant. This love is not passive. Wait until an opportunity drops into my lap kind of love. Did you catch the strong demonstration language in these passages? Romans 12, Hebrews 13, and 1 Peter 4. They all have this kind of language in them. They say, seek to show. Do not neglect to show. Show. In fact, the Greek in Romans translated seek to show is translated in other places in Romans to mean pursue, Romans 14, 19, and even persecute, Romans 14, 1. 
In other words, there is an intensity to this command that should not be overlooked. The New Testament idea of hospitality is an overt, intentional, and targeted act of love. So there are a couple of groundings for hospitality. God's law, Christian love, but our work is not quite complete. We have yet to consider what I believe is the premier motivation for kindness to strangers and generosity to those in need. Recall that we said earlier, the law teaches us about the character or the heart of God. Whenever we read the law, we're looking at a reflection of who God is. The setting for our first couple of passages is the giving of the law, which consistently addresses sojourners, fatherless, widows, those who have real needs without means or inheritance. That is, those who have a need of hospitality. As I read these passages, listen for two things. First, who does God call his people to identify with? That's the first thing to listen for. Who does God call his people to identify with? And second, what is God's disposition toward those who need hospitality? What is his disposition toward those who need hospitality? Exodus 23 says this, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 10 says this, he that is God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 24 says, When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This pattern, it gets repeated again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Can you hear it? God loves strangers. He loves foreigners. He loves sojourners. He loves the fatherless and the widowed. He loves the poor and the vulnerable. And why does he call us to love them too? Why? Why does he call us to love them too? Listen, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. The prime reason for hospitality is not social justice, beloved. It's not Bible Belt culture either. It is because we were strangers, foreigners, 
sojourners, enemies of the kingdom of God. We were the fatherless and the widowed with no protector or provider. We were the poor and the vulnerable with no inheritance or means. And while we were yet all these things sinners, God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, lavished the greatest hospitality upon us that history will ever know. You see, every time we show hospitality, we incarnate the redemptive love of God who showed kindness to us, a people in much need as we starved, wandered, and shivered in the cold blackness of our sin. In this sense, hospitality becomes a significant means by which we remind ourselves of our Redeemer. Why should we show hospitality? Because we, unlike all other peoples in the world, have been shown hospitality by God himself. To deny hospitality is to deny the daily saving grace of Jesus Christ in our own lives. Turn away from the needy. And functionally, you're turning away from the daily expression of the gospel that you experienced when you woke up alive that morning. Just as it was for God's people in ancient times, hospitality for the church today is to be the cultural hardwiring that ensures we never forget that in the midst of our sin and need, we were given the bread of life, living water, clean hearts, spotless robes, and forever home. We serve a redeeming, hospitable God. We therefore live as a redeeming, hospitable people. Biblical hospitality is one of the clearest expressions of a people who understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, you will be hospitable. As we wrap up this morning, I want to land us back in Philippians. On Palm Sunday, as we sat here trying to listen to Sean, while the sweet smells of Jocko's barbecue filled the room, I told you you were going to show up in this sermon, Sean... Sean was way ahead of me, expertly laying the foundation for biblical hospitality from the last verses of Philippians 4. He used the word generosity. In Philippians 4.14, Paul commends the local church at Philippi. Yet it was kind of you, Paul says, to share in my trouble. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Now hopefully, after a whole sermon on hospitality, you hear those words a little differently you realize this is the local church being hospitable to Paul. Generous to a specific person in a specific situation, it is a hallmark of the church. And though I doubt Sean queued up a Palm Sunday barbecue to create a real-time olfactory experience of Philippians 4.18, 
God in his providence did just that. Here Paul, just a few verses later, still discussing the Philippians' generosity. He says this, I have received full payment and more, as Paul saying from the Philippians. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And hear now how he describes those gifts. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Just as Jocko's barbecue filled this entire auditorium with a very pleasing aroma, so the hospitality of God's people ought to fill up the throne room of heaven. When we reflect to the world and the church the hospitality that we've been shown by God, God, it's kind of gross with my snotty nose, but you get the idea. God inhales and he is pleased with our sacrifice. Just an asterisk there. My son said, please don't do that. <laughs> when I was rehearsing this sermon, don't do that, Dad. Risen Church, our collective prayer ought to be that Creekside Forest Elementary, Rob Fleming Park, Love Beans Coffee, the Woodlands, your neighborhood, your home, even Wantakia, Papua New Guinea, should be filled up with the sweet fragrance of a hospitality that is earnestly motivated by the hospitality we have received from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though we'll cover it in later parts of this series, in case you're wondering where the time and energy come from for hospitality, know that Paul anticipated your question. You see, the Philippians supplied Paul's needs, and Sean did a great job of making this point in his sermon. They supplied Paul's needs, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us, from their lack of earthly resources. How? Well, Philippians 4, 19. And my God, Paul speaking here, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Beloved, hospitality begets hospitality. Don't resist or despair in showing biblical hospitality. It's okay to get spent, for life to get out of balance when showing hospitality. It'll be all right. God himself will provide all that you need. The gospel is your living proof. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is dazzling. When we look at it from beginning to end and we pull it together and we see your character as it's expressed in the culture of your people, Father, it is so remarkable and it is so different than what this world offers. We praise you and we thank you for mercifully giving us your word. And Father, we want to elevate and celebrate truth as it transforms us and changes us from the inside out. Make us, Father, a hospitable people for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.